Hello, this is Pastor Jimmy Harper. Thanks for listening to this Lee University broadcast. We're excited that you are joining us today for one of our many campus events. We hope that you are encouraged as you listen. I invite you now to take out your Bibles, and I know everybody has one, so pull them out, or if you have a personal Bible that you like to write in, or if you need one, there's ones in the pews as well. Or if you have a friend and you'd like to look off of them, we're going to be doing a little bit of exegesis this morning, coming to the text, doing some exegesis. And many of you are familiar with textual sermons or topical sermons or biographical sermons. But this morning we are going to be doing an exegetical sermon. And the difference between all those different types of sermons are basically rules. Rules are the basic way to differentiation be between different types of sermons. And, and all types of sermons have their own rules. And we're all familiar with rules, right? Your family, like my family, had rules. Growing up, my mama had a plethora of rules. Rules about this and rules about that. And when I broke those rules, I was punished, of course. Now, I was never spanked a day in my life. And I didn't go to timeout in my room because that was huddle time with my stuffed animals. No, instead, I was put in what they call in Canada the penalty box. I was put in the isolation corner. And it wasn't that I just stood there for 10 minutes or 20 minutes. Sometimes I would be there for two hours until the buzzer went ding. I hated it. It was the loneliest place in the world. I was completely isolated from my friends, from the family. If it happened during dinner time, oh well, no food for me. I was completely isolated in that corner. And so I did everything I could not to break the rules. Now, two rules that my mother was very keen about keeping had to do with public appearance and keeping the peace, especially when people came over to our house for dinner. And she said, two rules. First rule, no matter what you do, we do not talk about politics. She wanted to keep the peace. Second rule, no matter what, we will not talk about religion. One grandmother was Catholic, the other one was Lutheran. She didn't want a reformation over the sweet potatoes, so no talking about religion. And so she had these rules. And just like life, you will go into your profession, your career, and you will have rules that will differentiate you from another career. Those rules will begin to dignify your life and to structure you so you will be able to do what you want to do for your future. Well, I went into ministry. And there's a whole lot of rules about what you should do and what you should not do in ministry. My homiletics teacher, that's Preaching 101. My professor, he was in a wheelchair. His hair was slicked back. He had these thick glasses, and he used to say, Now, kids, there's lots of rules. Rules about standing, rules about what to wear, not to wear, how to use your voice fluctuation, your eye contact. And no matter what, there's two rules about preaching. Rule number one, kids, whatever you do, Never endorse a political candidate from the pulpit, right? Because it isolates people. If you're endorsing the blues, the reds are going to feel isolated, and likewise. And then he would push up his glass and say, no matter what you do, never gross your congregation out by talking about body fluids. <laughs> well, you think that would be a no-brainer, right? Well, my mama never had that rule, but maybe she should have because my Aunt Marge was always talking about her prep for a colonoscopy and my Uncle George was talking about the phlegm that he had because of his emphysema. Maybe she should have had those rules, but come to think about it, we in the church break this rule all the time. 
we have it happen all the time, especially on Sunday morning. They, the preacher has, you know, any prayer requests, and before you know it, you're praying for someone's blister on their big toe to drain, right? People are constantly, pray for this body part and pray for this body part. And one reason we, as a church, we talk about bodies all the time is because, well, we are bodily, right? We have bodies. And bodies influence our emotions and our spiritual walk and our psychological development. After all, we don't believe in the resurrection of the soul. We believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Amen? Amen. We believe in the resurrection of the body. We are bodily people, and bodies have fluid. That's right. They have fluid, and one fluid that dominates the ecclesiastical landscape is blood. See, I have a middle schooler. You have to say it with that vampire accent. Blood. Can we try that? Blood. That's right. Blood dominates the ecclesiastical landscape. It's crying out from the ground, from the saturated book. It's spread all over the doorposts from this book. And if you are a candidate for ministry in the Old Testament, the Levites, you had to have it on your ears. You had to have blood on your thumbs. You had to have blood on your toes. This book is a bloody mess. It's saturated with blood. And so we have to deal with this bloody mess. And this morning, we're going to be doing that. Now, the first time that I ever really realized that there was something very special about this sticky red substance that flows through our body was in 1982. 1982, second grade. I was sitting behind Curtis Green, and little Curtis Green got a bloody nose. This is high-altitude Colorado country. Everybody gets the bloody noses. What's the big deal? But this was 1982. This is the, the precipice of the Greg Luganus era. This was the height of the AIDS fear. And my teacher reacted. Systematically, she moved all the children, except for Curtis Green, over to one side of the room. And as she was moving us, we were looking out into this empty room with little Curtis Green sitting there in his little desk with his bloody nose dripping. And she would say, don't touch the blood. You know, that's going to do something to a child, right? <laughs> We're looking at poor Curtis Green, like, this is where kids, something's happened to him. And I realized right then and there, there is something very special about this blood stuff. Historically speaking, blood is considered dirty. That is, if it's coming out of you. If it's inside of you, you are good to go. But if it is coming out of you, it's a no-go, right? And the Jews understood this. The Jews had a love-hate relationship with blood, right? They said, if it's coming out of you, you are unclean. If you are having a bloody nose, you are unclean. And after your bloody nose is all cleaned up, you have seven days to purify yourself. And after that, you can come out of your isolation corner. You can come out of the penalty box because you're unclean. However, on the other hand, yes, blood caused you to be dirty, but it also cleaned, right? On the Day of Atonement, they invited people to bring their sweet little fluffy animals, and they would slaughter them, and they would pour blood all over the altar. They would sprinkle it. It was, it was a bloody mess, and yet they considered that was their way of cleaning that which was unclean. And the Jews had something going here. They were onto something because the reality is, is that blood actually does clean. 
Yes, neutrophytes and monophylls and platelets and plasma running through our veins right now as we speak are picking up chemical byproducts and waste, doing their janitorial duties and taking all this trash to the garbage receptacles, which are our kidneys. Now, for those who don't have kidneys, they have to go to Skyridge for five hours, three times a week, be hooked up to a tube and have all their blood drained out of them into a machine the size of a suitcase where our kidneys are only about one pound and do this all day long. And so the song goes, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of hey, Some of you know that song, yes. Hymns make for good biology. Who would have guessed? But there's more. We can live a pretty long time without eating and a so-so long time without drinking. But we can only go a few minutes without breathing. Not only does blood clean us, but it transfuses us with rich, wonderful oxygen so that every cell, every membrane, our, our, our heart and brain, our eyes, our skin, can essentially breathe. Doctors, hundreds of years ago, used to bleed their patients. Maybe their patient was hot-blooded or cold-blooded or not pure-blooded, bad-blooded or whatever. They would bleed them, and some of their patients would actually suffocate to death. I experienced that firsthand. I was at Boulder Community Hospital as the chaplain on call that day in the middle of a beautiful afternoon, standing with frantic family members in the hall of the ER when their mother was being rushed in on a gurney. And she was so pale. She was, she was silvery blue. And we watched in the flurry of activity as they hooked her up to this icy red bag. And we watched this crimson ribbon go into her arm. And, and in just a matter of moments, she began to turn pink and her eyes fluttered open. It was as if a miracle had happened. And it was nothing I had done. It was nothing the family or even the doctors had done. It was truly the power of that blood. Some stranger somewhere had to have their blood come out of them so that it could go into her. Blood shed and blood shared saved her life that day. Presumably, the biblical writers of the Old Testament and New Testament, they didn't know about the physiological nature of blood. I mean, how could they know? But God knew, and God chose a theological metaphor that had an exact analog to the medical world. The reality is, is that the more we learn about blood, the more we understand God is when science and faith kiss. So let's do a little bit of exegesis this morning. I want you to take those Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 5, verses 21 and following. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 and following. Listen now for a word from our Lord. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Basically what this is saying is, Jesus is on Jewish territory. 22. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. 
Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and lived. That word healed is so they in Greek. It's saved. So he's saying, Please come so that she will be saved and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. We sometimes go over that verse, but remember, imagine yourself in Rome, in the middle of rush hour, and there is no standing room on the, I mean, there's no sitting room on the bus. You are standing up and everyone is credit on you and you know you're gonna be about pickpocketed in any minute, okay? People are squishing up against Jesus, 25. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Now this woman, is not having a bloody nose, okay? She's not cut on her arm. This woman is menstruating. And for some of you, you're shocked that I even should say that. Ooh, that's gross, right? She is menstruating. And the, you, though the Jewish Christians would feel the same way. They'd be like, this is shocking. How could Mark talk about this? This is scandalous. The impropriety that Mark is going to. Indeed, she is menstruating and she has been bleeding for 12 years, which already gives us a clue of how the Jewish Christians would read this. They know that for 12 years, she has been unclean, which means for 12 years, she has not been able to go and worship God with the community. There's a, there's a juxtaposition that's going on in this text. We have Jairus, who is from the synagogue. He is a ruler. He is wealthy. He's in church all the time. And then we have this woman who's on the fringes of society, and no one even misses her at church. She's been isolated. She's been in her isolation corner for 12 years. And not only that, but she's probably been relegated to the garage because whatever she touches becomes unclean. So if grandpa touches the chair that she just touched, it's kind of like cooties, really, then he's going to be unclean and won't be able to go to church for seven more days. And so she's probably been relegated to the garage. She, is, she has encountered social death. She is on the fringes of society. Verses 26. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had Yet instead of getting, thing, getting better, she grew worse. I believe that many people in this room and many people beyond these walls can really understand this verse very well. For some people, they could even make it a life verse. For some people, their medical bills have destroyed their family's lives. And for many scholars, they'll say that this verse is the hinge of the entire chapter 5 of Mark. Why? Because it begins to develop a foundation of a Christian health care system. Not a Christian health care reform system, but just simply a Christian health care system. Christians have been in the health care service for forever. We are the ones that have been establishing hospitals and orphanages and the first blood bank. There is a great deal that I could talk about just this one verse, but that would be proof texting, and we are exegeting. So let us continue. Verse 27. When she heard about Jesus, notice Jairus sees Jesus. She hears about Jesus. She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Any Jewish good man and woman would know she just made Jesus unclean. If he thinks he's on to the way to synagogue, oh well, he better just change his mind. 
She has just touched him and made him unclean. She comes up, she touches his cloak, 28, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Interesting how the author has just entered into her head, right? He knows exactly what she's thinking. And the reason why he knows what she's thinking is because of verse 33. We'll get to there in just a minute. Verse 29, immediately, Mark all loves that word. <laughs> he loves it. He's such a drama king. Immediately, her bleeding stopped. For those of you who like to interpret scripture by scripture, this is an exact passage from Leviticus 15, 19 through 33. That word bleeding right there is fountain of blood. And you will find that in the law. Immediately, her fountain of blood stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed from her, literally, her whipping Freed from her whipping. My translation has suffering. Verse 30. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. When her blood stopped coming out, it was because his power came out. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and he asked, Who touched my clothes? 31. You see the people crowding around you? His disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? 32, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Isn't it interesting? Jesus is looking, but he doesn't see her. Isn't that odd? He's looking around to see who had done it. 33, then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. Just as Jairus had fallen at Jesus' feet, she comes now and she falls at his feet and trembling with fear. Why? Because he could punish her. He, she has just made him unclean. She could be stoned for this type of act. She comes trembling with fear and she tells him the whole truth. Here a woman, isolated for 12 years, silent throughout the crowd, finally has a voice. God allows her an opportunity for a testimony. She gives a testimony. 34, he says to her, daughter. Not only does he allow her to speak, but he gives her a name. She's a real person connected to a real family. He calls her daughter. Your faith has healed you. That word heal is sosokin, saved. Your faith has saved you. She is not being commended because of her bravery. She's being commended because of her faith. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your whipping. 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Sir, your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? You can only imagine what is going through Jairus' mind. This bleeding woman, she is an interruption. They were on their way. Yes, Jesus, it's great. Your daughter's fine, but what about my little girl? She is dead now. These people come to Jairus with a message of hopelessness despair and doubt. And for every single one of us, we are going to encounter those people. There will be more naysayers in your life than there will be yaysayers. People will tell you, you can't do it because of your gender, because of your age, because of your qualifications. And they will say, God doesn't want you to do that. 
They will say, well, what, there's all this evil in the world. Could God really be possibly a part of it? And there will be people who will sow seeds of doubt about God and about God's purpose for your life. And this is what Jesus does. Verse 36, ignoring what they said. I love that. I'm a, I'm a full believer in the spiritual discipline of ignoring people. Right? You gotta love people, but there are those times where you need to ignore them and listen to God. Ignoring what they said, Jesus turns to Jairus and he says, don't be afraid, just believe. And the question is, believe what? We go back to verse 33, believe the woman's testimony. Jairus is the one who's been seeing Jesus. Now Jesus is saying, use your ears. Listen to what you've heard. Listen to the whole truth. Believe the woman's testimony. 37, he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. So first they're crying. Then they're laughing. Oy vey. After he put them out, which should be after he booted them out. That's not really in the translation, but I think it's fun to think about. After he booted them out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. And he took her by the hand. What has he just done? He's touched her, right? She's dead. That's unclean. Jairus reaches out. The woman bleeding reaches out. This is the first time that Jesus has to reach out. Why? Because she's dead. Not only dead in her sins, but really she is dead. And he reaches out and he touches her. And he says to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Some scholars say that in the Aramaic, little girl here is actually little lamb, which begins a metaphor and a foreshadow of Easter, of the resurrection. Little girl, I say to you, get up, 42. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. The Gospel of Mark, Mark decides to tell us how old this little girl is. He doesn't say she's eight. He doesn't say she's four. She's 12. And this is not a minor detail. For every good Jewish man and woman knows that when you are 12 years old, little girl, you just have a couple more months until you are a woman. And you will start bleeding, and you will be unclean, and the cycle of isolation will continue. What this little girl needs is not just a quick fix. Not to say that raising from the dead is a quick fix, but she's going to die again someday anyhow. And she's going to live a life of knowing her impending doom of death and of social death over and over again, of being in her isolation corner. She needs someone who can break this cycle. Every little girl needs someone to break a cycle. Every little boy needs someone to come in and break this cycle once and for all. And we should know this better than anybody because we are Gentiles. We are the definition of unclean. 
right? We are dirtier than dirt. We're lower than low. We're the dogs under the table. And so often we go around feeling a little bit of proud of who we are. Jesus has saved us all these wonderful things. We're Christians and we forget. We forget what we used to be. Our mind gets hazy. It gets misty. And Ephesians, which I've printed in your bulletin this morning for the epistle reading. Ephesians 2 says, remember Print it in your bulletin. Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise. You were without hope. You were without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through what? through the blood of Christ. A blood that cleans, a blood that is transfused. We are brought near, our isolation corner is done. We can come out of the penalty box and we can become part of the family of God. That's what this little girl needs. And so to conclude the passage in which we are reading, God does exactly that. In verse 43, Jesus gives strict orders not to let anyone know about this. And he told them to give her something to eat. He gives an instruction. He gives a commandment. He gives a new rule. Eat. Have food. Have a meal. If I was that mama, and that was my little girl, I'd be like, not tell anybody? Are you crazy? I'm having a party. She was gone. And now she's alive. I can hold my daughter in my arms again. We can talk. We can converse. I'm having a party. She was lost. Now she is found. I've swept the whole house. I would go out and have the fatted calf for lunch. This is party time. Amen? Your daughter has been resurrected from the dead. And he says, give her food. Give her food. What kind of food? Recall the words of our Lord Jesus. In John chapter 6, he says, I tell you the truth, for unless you eat of the Son of Man and drink of his blood, you have no life in you. And so, we do what our Lord has commanded us to do. We come to the table. We come together and with our God. And some of us are shuffling towards this table and we come pale with lightened breath and weakened pulse. We come bruised with regrets and words of hopelessness and doubts already seated in our mind. We come tired and we come silvery blue. And Christ beckons us to come to a meal that celebrates life. That celebrates life. Whether it is transubstantiation or consubstantiation or outward sign of an inward reality, we can all agree that Christ is much more than just a living example. Christ is life itself. Behind us, above us, in front of us, and within our very veins. Therefore, let us join together our voices in the communion prayer, which is printed in your bulletin.
The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Let us pray. Gracious God, indeed it is right to give you thanks and to give you praise. We don't even have enough breath in our bodies to praise you, Lord, for what you have done for us. For you have cleaned us and you have transfused us and you continue to work in our midst, desiring all good and wonderful things for us. And so, Lord, we praise you. And we join our voices this morning with all those who gather in your name across this world. We ask, Lord, that as we partake of this meal, that as we come to this table and we partake of this cup and a part of this food, that you indeed would unite us as one. Grant us, Father, the Spirit to forgive those who've hurt us and to forgive ourselves. Please break the shame and the guilt that keeps us isolated from you and from others. And hold us close, Father. We ask that as we partake of this meal that you would strengthen us so that we could truly be your body, your hands and your feet and your voice, your kingdom come on earth. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ.